I don't know if you picked up on it's kind of like family day on the worship team. Did you notice that? We had a brother and a sister, a father and a daughter, a husband and a wife, uh, all leading us in worship today. It's a beautiful thing. Um, good news. Last week, you joined. Um, by that. And I, I want to uh, draw your attention to one other thing. This Thursday, our elders go away for our annual planning and prayer retreat from Thursday to Saturday. And uh, one of the things that we'll be doing, in addition to trying to discern what God has for us in the coming year, is we'll be praying for you. And so if you would be willing to send us prayer requests to this address, we will divide them up amongst us and spend time on Friday praying for you. Um, Point of clarity, that is elder's prayer, uh, not elder sprayer. Uh, we're, we're not going to come like power wash your house or anything like that, but, but we will pray for you if you'll send that. So make a note of that address and let us know how we can pray for you. Any requests you send us will be held in confidence among the elders, and uh, we're, we're glad, glad to pray for those things for you. Um, Mike Hearn tells a story while he was attending uh, graduate school in theology in Chicago. Campus housing, he says, was not available for um, his wife and, and, and he, so he ended up renting an apartment around the corner on fashionable Oak Street. And he says one morning he noticed a guy named Shu, the local shoeshine man who was out on the corner, street corner. He says he's like a carnival barker, hollering out to people, trying to get them to come and let him shine their shoes early in the morning rush hour. He says, on this one particular morning, a stretch limo pulled up in front of Shu, and out of the vehicle, he says, stepped a gentleman who was dressed like a cover model for GQ magazine. But rather than asking for a shoe shine, he sat Shu down and polished Shu's scuffed and tattered shoes. And when he was finished, he handed Shu a tip, a $100 bill. Then he returned to his waiting vehicle, the limo, and drove away without ever saying a word. And he says, when I got home that evening, my wife asked me how my day at school had gone, and I explained that on my way to class to learn about Jesus, I saw someone who acted a whole lot like Jesus. He says, to this day, I cannot remember what I learned in my theology classes that particular day, but it is hard to forget the lesson I learned at the corner of Oak and Rush from Shu and the man who acted a whole lot like Jesus. And I want to remind you and challenge you this morning that following Jesus makes a difference. It matters to people. It impacts people. And today I want to challenge you in a very specific way to imitate and follow Jesus' example. Um, and that has to do with eating. I want you to eat like Jesus, not necessarily this way. Um, I'm not concerned about what Jesus ate, but I'm concerned about who Jesus ate with, that we would follow who Jesus ate with and why he did. And there is an observable pattern. See if you can pick it up. Luke 15, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Luke chapter 19, 
When they saw Jesus, they all grumbled, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Matthew chapter 9, is Jesus reclined at table in the house? Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You pick up on the pattern? Uh, Jesus enjoyed meals with people outside of, of the kingdom. He enjoyed having meals with people who were renowned sinners and, and outcasts. Um, and it seemed that the thing that kept getting Jesus in trouble was that he enjoyed those kinds of parties. Jesus liked a good party. Okay? But in the eyes of the religious elite, those were bad parties, or at least parties, the wrong parties, or parties at least with the wrong people in attendance. And Jesus was at so many of these questionable parties that he required a reputation as a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And so what we want to do today is look in on a couple of those questionable meals and see if we can discern why Jesus would take such a risk to his reputation, get in such trouble, and what it means for you and me to follow his example in this very specific practice. Now, I taught on these exact passages last year but I just couldn't get away as we are focusing now as a church family on what it means to be devoted to loving our neighbors. I couldn't get away from teaching this again. It seems to be an, an inescapable, essential part of what it means to be devoted to loving our neighbors. So I'm going to lean today on what the Apostle Paul said when he said to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and it's safe for you. So the question that to ask today is not, have I, haven't I heard that before? That's not the question. The question is, am I doing this? Okay. Because this is for us all. This is for all of us to do and follow Jesus in these practices. We're going to look at two stories. The first of them is in Luke chapter 19. If you'll turn in your Bibles there, I would like to, to pray for us if I could. Let's, let's bow as you find your way there. Father, be kind to us. Have mercy on us. And now by your spirit, uh, show us, teach us your word that we might live it out with joy. We pray in Christ's great name. Amen. All right, Luke 19, Jesus enters Jericho and he's just passing through. But there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of, of stature. So Jesus enters the city of Jericho, but he's just passing through. He is, if you were to read Luke's, the context of this story in Luke, he's on his way to Jerusalem to die on the cross. And yet he has an appointment in Jericho that causes him to turn aside with a man called Zach. Okay? And Zach was a tax collector. Um, they were hated because they worked for the occupying Roman forces and they stole money as part of that process. 
They had kind of a pyramid scheme, and Zacchaeus was at the top of that pyramid. It says he was a chief tax collector. And evidently, he was good at it because it also says he was rich. Verse 3, you notice he was rich and he was short. Too short to even see Jesus through the crowds that had gathered um, after uh, there had just been in the previous chapter there had just been a healing of a blind man so there are large crowds and Zacchaeus can't see because he's short now it's possible that when it says because he was of small stature that could refer to Jesus but most likely and historically it's a reference to Zacchaeus it's well attested by that ancient hymn that Zacchaeus was a wee little man a wee little man was he so we're gonna go with that angle on it this morning. You know, it's interesting, some scholars have proposed that it wasn't just his stature that kept him from seeing Jesus, but it was the crowd's contempt for him that they would not let him near. And I just was struck, how much do you have to despise somebody to keep them from Jesus? Um, and so this morning, is there someone, or maybe a a stripe of people, maybe even a race of people, that if they were sitting around you this morning, you wouldn't be willing to speak to them? Maybe, maybe there's someone or maybe a stripe of person or even a, a race of person that you wouldn't want in your small group, that you wouldn't invite to your home for dinner, that you would feel uncomfortable if they were friends with your children? Um, again, how much do you have to despise someone to keep them from Jesus? Right? And in a day when, when our communities are really uh, sensing racial tension and divides, and the church is experiencing that as well, we have a really extraordinary opportunity I want to just tell you about real quick. There's a thing called Prayer 2016 on September 20th in downtown Raleigh, um, a group of churches have rented Memorial Auditorium. This is an annual event, and they gather for an evening. There are 94 churches signed up so far. We are one of those. They gather for an evening of exuberant prayer and worship. Okay, exuberant, underscore exuberant. Like, it's like Daniel Creswell had a triple shot of espresso exuberant prayer and worship. Okay, um, and we, we have been asked there's a, a, a wonderful fellowship right across the street behind the Friendship Professional Center. It's an African-American church. They've asked us to partner with them in this event. Okay? They specifically asked that North Wake Church would partner with them. Now, we have 20 seats reserved. We might be able to get some more. You can see there's already 94 churches involved, and there's a little bit of room. But if you would like to be part of something that could lead to breaking down the racial division that's in our churches and in our community, then if God's speaking to you about that, this is your opportunity. As we partner with a, just a wonderful fellowship right across the street, we have 20 seats. We might be able to get more. You can sign out under the map in the, in the lobby. Gregory Curtis is, is leading us on this process. But um, make, make note of that. And if you can join us for that, that seems to be something God's pleased to have us be part of. Anyway, verse 3. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. But he's not going to let that stop him, right? No hostile crowd of tall people 
is going to keep Zacchaeus from seeing Jesus. Okay? He is going to do whatever it takes. So watch what happens. And picture this. Think, think your CPA, coat and tie kind of guy. And he runs on ahead and climbs up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus. For he was about to pass that way. This is really kind of an undignified thing for a wealthy businessman to do. Um, clamors up a tree to watch a parade go by. But you have a sense that Zacchaeus really wanted to see Jesus. Okay. You get a sense that it's more than just idle curiosity that has a CPA scampering up a tree just to get a glimpse when he passes by. And he is about to have his wish come true in a way that he never could have imagined. The next verse is, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up. It's the only time anybody ever looked up to Zacchaeus. And he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And so he hurried and he came down and he received Jesus joyfully. So it's interesting that Luke goes out of his way to mention Zacchaeus' name. If you've read these gospel accounts of Jesus' life, most of the accounts are anonymous. A blind man, a paralyzed man, um, you know, a centurion. Um, but this case, not only do we know Zacchaeus' name, but we hear Jesus speak it. Jesus knows his name. And Jesus calls to him by name. It's a very personal encounter. And he says to him, I must come to your house today. Jesus feels compelled to spend time with this outcast and share a meal with this short, rich thief. Okay? And so he orders him down from the tree, and Zacchaeus welcomes him into his home gladly. Um, all he had hoped for was just a glimpse of Jesus, and now he's coming into his home to stay with him. This was way more than he ever hoped for. I don't imagine he scampered down a tree this fast in his life. Okay? But not everybody is that excited about what's going on. It says when they saw it, likely that crowd that was celebrating Jesus' miracle, healing miracle that just happened, when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Tax collectors, just to give you a sense for what it was like, one writer says, tax collectors were looked upon with all the fondness we would look on a drug dealer with. To stay at someone like Zacchaeus' house and eat with them was to be essentially a partner in crime because social isolation was considered part of the deterrent so that your, your kids wouldn't grow up to be tax collectors, right? They were socially isolated. But evidently, the risk to his reputation was worth it to Jesus, and it changed Zacchaeus' life. Watch, watch what happens next. Zacchaeus stood, and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods. <clears throat> the half of my goods. He's a wealthy man. Half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, and the implication is, since I have defrauded people of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. 
Okay, this is like an extreme makeover, right? Right before our eyes, a renowned thief becomes the town philanthropist. He gives away half his income. He, he commits to right his wrongs. He willingly takes on the most severe of financial penalties. I'm going to pay back what I've done wrong fourfold, four times as much. And Jesus declares that this amazing change of heart can be attributed to one thing. Salvation has come to Zacchaeus' house this day. Zacchaeus' sins that have so separated him from God have been remedied. His relationship with God has been made right by Jesus. He is now a spiritual son of Abraham. And Jesus says, this is why. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. This is, this is why Jesus came. This is why he came into the world. This is why he passed through Jericho. Why he must go to Zacchaeus' house. He is seeking someone to save, to bring into a relationship with God. This was his mission. He came to Jericho for Zacchaeus. He sought him out and invited him to believe. Jesus is still doing that. Okay? He is still seeking out men and women and boys and girls who will believe in him. But how does he love to do it? Well, how Jesus did it in this case, I think his enemies had it right. Jesus said, I come eating and drinking a friend of sinners and tax collectors. He befriended people and had a meal with them. Okay? In somebody's home sharing a meal, someone who is far from God, um, someone highly unlikely to ever walk into this room. Those are people Jesus was eager to have a meal with. The unlikely ones, like all of us were, right? All of us are outsiders until Jesus brought us in. See, Zacchaeus' story, it's our story. And this meal with Jesus changed, changed his life. Okay, second story we want to look at today is in Matthew chapter 9. If you want to turn there, we'll start in verse 9. It says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he called to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. So Matthew, he's also called Levi, was also a tax collector, right? He's sitting at a tax booth. This is the kind of guy that probably worked for Zacchaeus. Sitting in the tax booth, collecting taxes. Um, they were not to be associated with socially, as we've been seeing. In fact, the expression tax collector became kind of the poster boy for someone who was excluded from relationship. In Matthew 18, when Jesus is teaching us how to treat someone who professes to be a believer but refuses to live it out, he says, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Remove them from your relationship. Uh, Dale Bruner writes that by Jewish law, a tax gatherer was debarred from the synagogue. He was included with things and beasts unclean. He was forbidden to be a witness in any case. Robbers, murderers, and tax collectors were classed together in that regard. 
They were swindlers. They were equated socially with pagan slaves. And yet, who does Jesus call to follow? Matthew, the tax collector. And Matthew follows. No one is outside the reach of the great mercy and grace and love of Christ. Now, this may well be Matthew whose gospel you're reading, the account of Christ's life you're reading in your Bible called Matthew. He may have been one of the 12, that Matthew. What we want to focus on here is what Matthew does next. So back in our passage, we find Jesus reclining at table in the house. And this same account is told in other gospels in the New Testament. And we know from those that it's Matthew's house. So Jesus is reclining at table in Matthew's house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So the first thing Matthew does is throw a party for his sinner friends and invite Jesus. Okay? What was he thinking? Okay? He wasn't thinking. He was hoping that they could meet Jesus just like he had. And so he throws, Matthew throws a party, and it raises this recurring question. When the Pharisees see this, they say to their disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Evidently, the Pharisees are looking in the window on the party, or else they were invited too, and they're troubled by this. They had a reputation for excelling at observing religious laws with exactitude, right? This was their strength. They lived in a closed community where admission was carefully regulated and cleaning up your act was a condition of association. So according to their tradition, there was a whole segment of society that no self-respecting Pharisee would associate with. They called them sinners. And Jesus is befuddling them, okay? He's coloring outside the lines. He's hanging out with the wrong people. And Grant Osborne says these, these sinners in this story were likely the blatant offenders of the rule of conduct. People such as pimps and prostitutes, thieves and gamblers. And Jesus and his disciples were sharing table fellowship, having meals with disreputable people. The Pharisees were scrupulous in their eating habits, not just in terms of the food laws, what they would eat, but who they would eat with. One scholar researched the laws that came out of the Pharisees, their beliefs, and of 341 rulings that go back to them, 229 were related to table fellowship, who you can eat with. So he said, he calls the Pharisees an eating club. And another guy says that um, for them, doing lunch was doing theology. A central question for the Jews in Jesus' day was, with whom can I eat? Okay. And they had a legitimate concern, right? Uh, for instance, in the back of their heads, they're thinking of scriptures like this. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. 
But here is Jesus sitting precisely with these types. One writer raises the question, who was right, Jesus or these scriptures? What possible good could fraternizing with such people do? If one of Jesus' purposes is the renewal of the people of God, what kind of an example is this kind of dinner setting setting? Okay. See, for Jesus and his disciples to eat with such people was scandalous. Imagine if you found out that I'd been having lunch with someone down at the Gentleman's Club, down on the Beltline in Raleigh. It's not a Gentleman's Club, in case you're wondering. Don't go there. Find another place to have lunch. But, you know, it's that kind of scandal. Jesus is eating at Matthew's house. And everybody was there. Um, but for Jesus to lovingly associate with these people in their homes is quite different than what the psalmist meant by walking in the counsel of the wicked. It's different in terms of motivation. It's different in terms of influence. Jesus was motivated by love, not enticed by dark desire. Okay? He's clearly the influencer in these situations, not the one being influenced by them. Jesus came to call sinners, serious sinners, professional sinners, and he wants to do that. He likes to do that up close, often over a meal. He's with them, among them, in someone's home, at a party, sharing a meal. And he did it so often that this was his reputation. Right? Now, back at Matthew's house, Jesus has heard the Pharisees' question, and he now um, tells them that they need to go study their Bibles some more. Here's what he says. When he heard their question, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, right? Just makes sense. And learn what this means, he says. Go study your Bible some more, he's telling the Bible scholars. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay. Jesus here is is confronting the Pharisees. They've gone off mission. They think that the sacrifice of things like sac separation from sinners is what God asks. And Jesus is saying, you are wrong. What the Father wants is for you to bear mercy to them. The Pharisees are motivated by fear. They're afraid that if they get involved with these people, they'll be influenced by them and they'll be unclean. But Jesus is motivated by love, so he engages these people so that they might find mercy. Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And how does he do that? He eats with them. Okay. Meals mattered in Jesus' day. Just think with me about how significant meals were in the Bible. Um, how did the Jews celebrate their great rescue from Egypt, um, the Passover? With a feast. Okay. How do Christians celebrate our great rescue from sin through Jesus, our Passover lamb? With a meal. We call it the Lord's Supper or communion. It's language symbolic of table fellowship that we enjoy with the Lord. 
because of his sacrificial death on our, in our place. When the writers of Scripture try to describe heaven, how do they describe it? In Revelation 19, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's a big feast is heaven. Jesus uses that language uh, when he says in Luke 22, um, I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Okay? The picture is a great banquet, a great meal. In Bible, the meals are about fellowship. They're about relationship, about restoration and communion with God and, and with one another. It's one of the greatest pictures of what it means to know God and to be loved and accepted by Him, to have a meal at His table in his company. Meals mattered in their day. Who you shared them with really mattered. And if you think about it, it still matters. If you see someone this morning who's a friend of yours and says, hey, we want you to come over and have dinner tonight. What does that say about your relationship? It matters. It's acceptance. It's enjoy, a desire to enjoy their company. And it's a powerful thing. Some of you have read the writings of a lady named Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. She's a gifted writer, and I, I recommend her writings um, highly. But she tells her story and how hospitality affected her this way. She says, at the age of 36, she was a recently tenured professor in the Center for Women's Study at Syracuse University. Rosaria and her lesbian partner were members of a Unitarian Universalist church where Rosaria was the coordinator of what is called the Welcoming Committee, the Gay and Lesbian Advocacy Group. Now up to this point in her life, Rosaria said that the only Christians she knew were intellectually impaired. Okay. She said they were the kind of people who sent me hate mail or who carried signs at gay pride marches that read, God hates fags. But her negative image of Christians got shook up because she built a relationship with a local believer. He happened to be a pastor. His name was Ken, and his wife's name was Floyd. And here's how Rosaria describes their hospitality towards her. She says, I remember being so conscious of my butch haircut and the gay and pro-choice bumper stickers on my car. During our meal, I remember holding my breath and waiting to be punched in the stomach with something grossly offensive. She says, I believed at this time that God was dead and that if he ever was alive, the fact of poverty, violence, racism, sexism, homophobia, and war was proof that he didn't care about his creation. I believed that religion was, as Marx wrote, the opiate of the masses. But Ken's God, she said, seemed alive, three-dimensional, and wise if firm. And Ken and Floyd were anything but intellectually impaired. She said, Ken and Floyd did something at the meal that has a long Christian history. They invited the stranger in. Not to scapegoat me, but to listen and to learn and to dialogue. We didn't debate worldview. They were willing to walk the long journey to me in Christian compassion. During our meal, they did not share the gospel with me. After our meal, they did not invite me to church. Because, she says, of these glaring omissions in the Christian script, as I had come to know it, when the evening meal ended and Pastor Ken said he wanted to stay in touch, I knew that it truly was safe to accept his open hand. 
Since this beginning, the journey on which the Lord has taken me has been a great adventure, and this simple meal in a Christian's home was the first leg of this journey. Before I ever stepped foot in a church, I spent two years meeting with Ken and Floyd and on and off studying scripture in my heart. Ken knew at the time that I couldn't come to church. It would have been too threatening, too weird, too much. So Ken was willing to bring the church to me. And Rosaria now is a pastor's wife in Durham. Right? David Mathis says, when people don't gather in droves for stadium crusades, when they won't tarry long enough on the sidewalk to hear your gospel spiel, what will you do? Where will you interact with the unbelieving about the things that matter most? He says, invite them to dinner. The New Testament language for this kind of thing is hospitality. The love for strangers, the love for outsiders. And though the New Testament applies it both within and without the people of God, it's a command to us. We're commanded to be hospitable people. Romans 12 says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Hebrews 13 says, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. 1 Peter says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Okay. And 1 Timothy says, if you want to be an overseer or an elder in the church, you must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. See, being hospitable is not a Christian option. It's a Christian requirement. It's what we must do. I love the way Catherine Parks put it. They shall know us by our parties. Okay? And then she prays, she prays this prayer of confession. We, we could probably pray it with her, some of us. Father, forgive me. It's a month into summer vacation. I have not hung the twinkle lights and laid out the fine linens in your name. I have not fired up the grill and hosted my friends and neighbors. I have not partied like you taught us to party. Forgive me. Tim Chester says, he's got an excellent little book on this called A Meal with Jesus. And he says the Pharisees are asking Jesus to behave like a doctor who avoids sick people. Such a doctor clearly couldn't do his work. And Jesus the Savior can't do his work unless he's with sinful people. It's the same, he says, for those who follow Jesus. We can't do our work of pointing sinners to the Savior unless we spend time with them. The first thing Matthew does after coming to Jesus is to throw a party. In these stories, right, we are like Zacchaeus. We are like Matthew. We have been rescued, and our great hope is that our friends will be too. Being hospitable is something we must do and we can do. You don't have to have a theology degree. You don't have to have a doctorate. You don't have to learn all kinds of cool missional jargon. Tim Chester says two things. We, we just need to be people who eat and people who love Jesus, okay? That's all that's required. Provocative news survey out, just out. Buckle up. 100% of your neighbors eat food. 
I'm not making this up, 100% of your neighbors eat food. Um, we just need to be people who eat and people who love Jesus. The meal, of course, is the setting whereby we pray and ask for an open door for conversations about the things that matter most. Okay. Doesn't have to be anything fancy. You don't have to go to New York City and buy them the golden opulence Sunday for $1,000. Good berries will do just fine. Okay. Don't miss this, though. It's commanded of you if you want to imitate and follow Jesus. It's commanded. We are all to do this. It's rooted in the loving hospitality that God shows us. You go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and the sticky pages of the Old Testament where the law of Moses is given in Leviticus, and we read this. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. In the New Testament, when John says, we love because he loved us first, we could easily say, we invite because he invited us first. When was the last time you had someone who was unchurched, dechurched, outside of the church, in your home for a meal? Does your small group have a plan to do this together, to have parties together? If you are what I call a hospitality monster, okay, you're a party person, you should help your small group do this. Invite us introverts to your parties. Okay? We have to be intentional about it. John Piper says, there is a psychological force of gravity that constantly pulls our thoughts and affections and physical actions towards the center of our own selves and our own homes. Therefore, the most natural thing in the world is to neglect hospitality. It is the path of least resistance. All we have to do is yield to the natural gravity of our self-centered life, and the result will be a life so full of self that there's no room for hospitality. We will forget about it. We will neglect it. And so he says, the Bible bluntly says, stop it. Stop neglecting hospitality. Practice hospitality. You can do this. You can do it at your home. You can do it at work over lunch hour. You can do it at the school cafeteria. You can do it with your small group. You can do it in a coffee shop. You can do it at Joyner Park. You can do it anywhere there's food. A simple meal with a friend or an acquaintance or even a stranger prayerfully asking God to open the door to the gospel over those conversations over a shared meal. Are you ready to do that? Can you share with someone the difference Christ has made in your life? Could you explain to someone what it means to follow Jesus and how you could follow Jesus, how you could become a follower? See, we can do this. We must 
do this. Um, long time ago, 1,500 years ago, there was a fellow named St. Benedict. He came up with a thing called Benedict's Rule. And it shaped and refined the monastery movement that was critical for preserving certain portions of Christian tradition during that time. And they had very specific instructions for a very specific role in the monastery. And that was the, the guy who was the porter who was in charge of answering the door. The porter's job was to open the door to the monastery when someone knocks. Now, it's easy to think that's not much of a role. Um, but uh, one contemporary Benedictine author says, um, the way we answer doors is the way we deal with the world. Will you open your doors to your neighbors and welcome them in the name of Christ? Some of you do not even know your neighbor's names. Will you repent of that and open your doors and invite them in in the name of Christ? Will you open your heart to them and truly be a friend to them? Would you even open your mouth and speak of Christ to them? This morning we've seen that the Son of Man came eating and drinking, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Let me challenge you. Go and do likewise. Okay? Go and do likewise. The worship team's going to come now and lead us in a response time. And if God is poking you in this area and you need to repent of that gravitational pull that's made it all about your home, or if you have someone in mind and you're thinking, I know exactly who I'm supposed to do this with. I've already got the menu planned. I know what we want to do. Why don't you come for prayer during this song? Bring a friend and just kind of nail that, seal that. You want to respond to what God's saying to you with prayer. Bring a friend or come and pray with one of our leaders during this song. Um, as we prepare to close. So if you'll stand, let's worship Christ who loves us so.